All right, so John 14. 14, 18. Uh, we got through 15. We actually did get through three verses last time. But, uh, three verses. <laughs> we haven't, we haven't we're still off that. that. We're no, we're not using the entire book of John right now. <laughs> we're doing the entire book of John. Once I started that, I was like, no, we can't, we can't just feed through this book. <laughs> All right, so, um, Shalina, would you please read verses 18 to 24? I will not leave you orphans. I'll come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself in us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home in him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. First question. What does this tell us about God? Well, that he's very interested in being with us. That he's... That's his focus. Um, I've been unpacking, actually, I think starting last week, I've been unpacking something I learned just recently about a still face versus an active face. And this is, this is based on an experiment done by a developmental psychologist, uh, Edward Tronick, back in... 70s or 80s, somewhere in there, uh, where he had mothers come in with infants, and the mother would engage the infant in making faces and, and laughing and, and playing with the baby. And then the experimenters would say, now do a still face for three minutes. You've, you've heard of this study, right? Mm -hmm. That has opened up, that study has opened up a completely new understanding. I, I shouldn't say completely new, but just enhanced, completely enhanced understanding of the God of the Old Testament. Because I've studied the ancient Near East, and I've studied idolatry. I have a whole book on at home called The Graven Image, and how idolatry worked in the ancient world. And if you compare and contrast Mesopotamia with the Old Testament, it just sharpens this whole thing of God, the God of the Old Testament has an active face. In fact, uh, go to Numbers 14. And this is probably at the, at the bottom of the pit for God at the Israelites in the wilderness because they've just come to the promised land, sent the spies out. Spies have come back with a bad report, and the Israelites are ready to stone the, the two spies that say, look, we can go in. Uh, and they're ready to stone Moses. And they won't go in. They just adamantly refuse. And, Mo and Moses goes to God in verse, uh, well, in verse 12, God says, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you great, a nation greater and mightier than they. God doesn't have to strike them. He just has to let go the forces that are out there, and they would all die. And that's what he's proposing to do. Can I ask you a question about that? Why is the wording, like what you just said, if God let them go, then why they did, die. Why strike them? But why in the Bible do they keep pressing God as he's the one that's killing them and getting pestilence and striking them? And he's going to, because it's very clear here, he's going to give them pestilence and disinherit. And, uh, why do they word it that way? Is because that the translation? or is that it's, the, it's because that's the way everybody in the ancient Near East reasoned. If you, if anything happened to you, God, the gods did it. The gods were responsible. They decreed it. 
And, and Israel has that mindset. So, so the writers, remember that the words are not inspired in the Bible. God inspired the persons who wrote that inspiration in their own words. And so we, we cannot say that these expressions really represent God. They represent the human writer. It's just so much of that that's taken today. I know. We, well, we read very literalistically, and, and we have to realize that you get behind the language in, in terms of the principle of reading. So, so God says this, and, and it's obvious that he's testing Moses. It's obvious, like he did with the golden calf experience. Step aside, Moses, so that I can get angry at them. Well, who could keep God from getting angry? I mean, why does Moses need to step aside? It's almost a parody of the ancient Near Eastern perception of God. Well, isn't that really God talking to him? Is that really it, it, God is God, it is God, but he's using, he's doing a parody mm. in testing Moses. See what Moses is going to do. So Moses says to the Lord, verse 13, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for in your might you brought up this people from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, and now he comes to the stark, graphic difference between Yahweh and the gods of the other nations. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them. And you go in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. This is the God of the active face. And what sharpens us even more is to realize that the God of the Old Testament is the initiator of almost all relationships with Israel. Right? Who calls Abraham out of Cain, out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees? Who, who talks to Isaac, uh, to uh, Jacob? Who establishes Joseph? You do not see the patriarchs trying to get God down to talk to them. You don't ever see that. God is the one who always initiates contact. He's the God of the active face. Now you go to Mesopotamia. And all the, the whole Mesopotamian religion is all about getting your God to come down and talk to you. Or not talk to you, but just come down and be present. So you make an idol. And the idol, does the idol have an active face? <laughs> no. Totally silent face. A totally passive face. In fact, it's a flat face, as we talked about last week. And, and you, you open its mouth. There's an, uh, actually a ritual they use for a mouth-opening ceremony so that the God can, can inhabit this wooden body. And then you have a mouth-washing ceremony, and then the, God's vi and then the idol's viable. The God can come down and, and work with that idol and be there. And then you have to do all kinds of things to that idol. Uh, clothe it, feed it, house it, uh, take it on excursions so it's not bored, so it gets out of the house. <laughs> I mean, there's just this long list of things you have to do to this God to get him to, to do anything for you. And is he active? Well, once in a while people have visions of Marduk and, and things like that, but... Not, after they've, not until they've suffered a terribly long and hard do they ever have that kind of experience. So when Jesus says, those who love me, and, and remember, remember the, I, maybe I haven't stressed this much lately. <clears throat> I've been stressing it in my other classes, so sometimes I forget where I am. Our love is not our own. Any love we have for God, for other people, is not ours. The great difference between God and us is that He's the source of love. No one has to love Him in order for Him to love us. 
as the Bible puts it in 1 John 4, 19, he lo- we love because he first loved us. That's a law. That's a psychological law that can't be broken. Yes, Kim? Um, in your speaking about this, one thing that, um, because I know um, sometimes you think, how does that happen? It, and I don't know that this would make any difference to others, but something that strikes is um, that, you know, it's like a parent and a child, you know, your child can do all kinds of things. And yet, and you say, I'm done with them. I'm done. I'm not going to do anything. Nothing more. And they come in and they go, hi. And you go, oh, you know. And, and it's, a, it's a compelled kind of thing, almost. At least for humans. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's for... But see, you know, see our, but our love... Nothing. Our love is... We, we tend to love those who love us, you know, because we, we need other people's love in order to love. We can't generate it on our own. We can't source it out, <laughs> you might say. We're not the source of love. So all love comes ultimately from God. And the way I believe it works is that God mediates love with us from human to human that he actually uses our weak, paltry love in a bigger way than we could ever imagine to affect and to help other people. So when Jesus says, those who love me and keep my word, he's not talking about some great thing we've done. Okay, if you love me, I'll come make my home with you. See, I'm dependent on your love. That's not what he's saying. He's still using this deterministic language. But what it actually means is those who respond to my love with love. Because we are creatures of response. And my Father will love them. Is the, is the Father's love contingent on our love for Him? No, the Father's love is what enables us to love Him. My Father will love them and we, the Father and Jesus, will come to them and make our home with them. Now, this is a version that tries very hard to be uh, gender-inclusive. So, um, the version you read. Where it says him. Him. Uh, he who loves me and keeps my word, my Father will love him, and we will come, in, come to him and make our home in him. It's in him. I suppose in the Greek you can translate it with. But with doesn't have the intimacy of that word in. And I think Jesus means in. I think he means the highest level possible of intimacy. Now notice, this is after he's talked about the Holy Spirit. It's the Father and the Son that will come and make their home in us. You know, Gene, that 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 would solve a myriad of problems if that was always conscious on our minds. That we always get in trouble because we think we have goodness, or that we can do this, or we, and then all this comes from the Father. That any goodness or anything that looks like goodness. That's why, that's why Ellen White calls it borrowed. Our goodness is I, I borrowed. Love I love that. Yeah, that, that is a huge paradigm. That would make. And you know, I, I used to, I used to, I'm a very independent sort. When I was a child, uh, my mother was trying to teach my older brother manners. And so she made him open the car door for me and open the ha- and the door of the house for me, which he, which he hated doing, uh, and which I highly indignantly resented. I can do it myself. <laughs> I would spout, and uh, I just had this, this horrible. Uh, need to to be independent, and I can do it my way, and I can do it myself. <laughs> and so the gospel was hard for me. You know, this this thing of you, you blessed are those who recognize their spiritual need. It was like, mm. and and so I struggled with that. And what finally helped me was to think about it in terms of the ecosystems of our world, where everything is giving to everything else. 
and everything is interdependent on everything else. One system says, I don't want to be part of this anymore, I want to do my own thing, goes off. The whole system breaks down. And when I realized, oh, this is the way God, this isn't just because I'm a terrible sinner. This is the way God made me to operate throughout eternity. This is just the way he made me to function. And when I put love in there, when I understood this is all about the love, the love cycle, you might say, it just made so much sense. And it was like, yes, of course I'm dependent on God for love. I can't do that myself. I remember, you know, experiencing that when I was in the 70s, early 80s, teaching high school, just a really rough year with all the turmoil. Yes. And realized that my ability to love my students was totally, they're not, not always easy to love, <laughs> uh, was totally dependent almost on a daily infusion or or borrowedness of God's grace <laughs> because that wasn't something that I had within me you know what else you think well I have good genes and nice parents <laughs> well it might make it easier in that trap but I needed I needed to I remember it said you know Lord take out my my I had these texts that were my favorite thing I was a Bible teacher so, so mm -hmm. <laughs> favorite things that Lord take out my heart of stone give me a heart of flesh just pour your spirit to me today I mean love these kids you know <laughs> even if they're mean or don't like but we're, you know, being rebellious or whatever. Yeah, that was the re era, of, era of rebellion. I remember growing up in Shadow of Laurelwood Academy, which, which was probably the proto-example of that kind of problem, and, and it, it wasn't helped by the legalism that was just rampant on that, in that yeah. academy. I mean, it was just, I mean, the, the fear that we grew up under. And, and it was my brother, you're talking about my brother's class in a sense, uh, because... Uh, That's why I did my student teaching. <laughs> yeah, for, lucky you. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, th I think back to that sh shadow of, of the investigative judgment being hung over our head, and the time of trouble was intimate, and, and just all of this fear, fear, that just led to that rebellion. It um, really does, yeah. But I think in that... Um, if you're in that posture, if we could stay in that posture. If the, we could just stay in his presence. Yeah, stay in his, yeah, in that. In that, that, that embrace of love. Yeah. Um, and walk in that and just, just live in that. It would, it would solve every problem we ever had. <laughs> so straighten out our theology. <laughs> it would, <laughs> Perfect love casts out fear, isn't it? Yeah. So, he makes, and I don't think we comprehend what it means for him to make, for the Father and the Son to make their home in us. Oh, yeah. do, you, do you think also when he says, you can't come to the Father unless I call you? So even any inkling that we want to move toward God is a gift. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> We're, and this, is, this wouldn't be if we had been ever connected with him. Right. But because we got disconnected, we're helpless. We don't like that word, helpless, but we're helpless mm -hmm. to be able to reconnect. I think, I think one way to look at that is to think about what happens with an animal who's been deeply traumatized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and you try to make overtures to it. And it just gets all its defenseless and hackles up. I'm thinking of a dog right now. Um, I, I met a dog this morning. <laughs> I, I've met this dog before, but uh, we've never been able to make friends. Partly because I'm a cat person, and I have he, he can smell the <laughs> he can smell the cats, and he can smell the cat food he can't eat, which is terribly hard on a dog. They love cat food, which is not good for them. So he, w he decided to try to play with me, so he was prancing around me. I said, oh, are we playing? And his owner said, who had him on a leash, and she said, oh, yes, he's playing. That's his play posture. And so then I reached out to him, and he... <laughs> and that was the end of playing <laughs> for quite a while. Well, we went around in circles and barked and, and acted like I was some kind of... 
uh, evil force <laughs> that was in his life. When we think about that, that's, that's how we tend to react sometimes. We don't do it like a dog, but we have our ways of, of you know, really acting vicious uh, when we're deeply afraid. And, and the way to deal with fear, you know, is to rally and, and to be bigger and more powerful and better at getting back. That's, that's the model we're in as a whole society right now. So this, so this, this concept of being connected is probably major underlying everything. Because on all levels, physics, science, emotions, everything is connected. So some way we were totally disconnected how God has everything designed. We came out of that design. And now there's other concepts coming up, the quantum theories and the string concepts, that we're really more connected than was realized before. So I had everything is really interconnected, so we're like, uh, well, we're just not connected. Right, and and that's why when the body of Christ gets sick, when one part of it gets sick, the whole body suffers. And haven't you ever been in a church where there was toxicity? It, the whole church suffers. You know, Gene, kind of in a. I remember, kind of in my world, of course, the same principle for healing, that all humanistic theory says you can heal yourself. You're the major... And, and teaches you to love yourself. And how can you love yeah, yeah. yourself? <laughs> when it comes to the most difficult thing to heal, they've never, all their systems and theories, none have worked on addiction, which is which is in a very deep, you know, disorder. Disconnect. So, so you, first thing you have, the only thing that works is you have to say, I am powerless. Mm -hmm. And I have to have a power outside of myself, greater than myself, to kill myself, step one. Because it, it even is, say when you come, when you have conversion, you, can, you know how all of us have struggled in that journey of conversion until I was willing to just... To say I'm helpless, Lord, just take me. You know, it it doesn't work. It, it he'll he'll work with you, but the healing really the dynamic the doesn't happen. And don't don't you think that that power isn't willpower? No, no I don't think so. I, don't I think that that addiction is based on a deficit of love, mm -hmm. just this huge empty hole of love, right. and we fill it with everything we can get our hands on to try to to compensate and to try to fill it and to try to... Substitute for intimacy. And, and, and so we... What we need... And I think we preach the wrong thing about overcoming sin. <laughs> God will give you willpower to do this. And God is saying, you know, willpower is... The only willpower there is is love. <laughs> And my dwelling in you, and 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 we having that very tight, loving, warm connection. And once we have that, you don't need that other stuff. There's um, area of my research stuff was in bonding and attachment. If you have you have interrupted attachment, we call it we a child, but you never had that attachment. It is the basis of 15 psychological disorders. <laughs> so if you don't have that deep intimacy and connection, everything starts breaking down. It is, uh, and, and the opposite, when you have it, I think it heals everything. I believe that. I believe that. How to make this real. And you know, the, the problem I'm, I'm finding, it, we're, I, I feel like we're talking around it, because it is something you can only experience. It is not something you can describe. That's the struggle <laughs> that's we have. The, yeah, like true. when we go to Clear Lake, you know. It's so hard because we can't... They have to experience it themselves, and they feel like it's not real because they haven't experienced it. And we see that 
you know, their addictions and everything. They just need it so bad. But mm-hmm. it's so hard because they haven't experienced it yet. And maybe you need to bring them back to step one. They can't. Yeah. They need they need to recognize that they're helpless. Uh, that's very hard on the ego. Somehow we we think that we can solve our problems by ego tripping. By if if we can fix this ourselves, then we get we're okay. We want to be okay, but we want to do it ourselves. And so we end up fighting the Holy Spirit instead of surrendering to him. So that means then the Holy Spirit's not just giving us theoretical theology. No. This is totally experiential. It's giving us knowledge of the world, how things work, all kinds of knowledge, not just spiritual knowledge, right. spiritual love. And I think so much of the Holy Spirit seen as just giving us spiritual no, it's a, it's it is, and, and again, I I can't resist using Ellen White because she says so many things about this, that that the laws that govern our spiritual world are that there are laws that govern the natural world, and she says the laws that govern the spiritual world are no less, and as she parallels them, they're they're really the same kinds of laws. You know what you were saying? I have a client I'm working with been abused early. So they have no concept, so I'm trying to make a relationship work, <laughs> or to assist in making a relationship work. Well, they have no concept of what this stuff is that we're, you know, they don't know what the glue is. They don't know what it feels like, smells like, tastes like. So how, I remember when I was at Berkeley, I ran into this on a, on a high level. One day I was just so angry and frustrated with the, you know, the person come out of abuse, there's a professor's kid, and, and she was a searcher, and... And I said, and I, I remember walking away, and I said, Lord, there's no chance she could ever understand a loving God. Why don't you just show up? <laughs> you know? And I came back the next week, and I said, well, did you read the first, you know, he had a, she didn't even know who Jesus was. You know, I said, you know, there's a baby at Christmas, and, you know, uh, he, oh, yeah, I've seen that. So, so he, he had a friend, and uh, we're up in Sproul Plaza there, <laughs> and, I says, he, he left some writings. Would you read a couple of pages and then tell me what you think? And one question, how, would, how did he treat people and how would he treat you? And I, I walked, I met her the next week. And uh, I said, hey, did you read your assignment? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah. And she just paused and said, Doug, I love him. I says, you can't love him. You don't know him. <laughs> and for the next five minutes, she shared the most gorgeous picture of Jesus I had heard mm-hmm. in a long time. He had just shown up in this little pagan, <laughs> you know, and uh, revealed himself. But I think it's, often we try so hard to work and make all this stuff fit, and it's, it, love is revealed, I think, a lot of times. Or he just, you don't get it or understand it until... See, that's the way it was in, in my earliest experience where I was converted, is that God first allowed me to get really dry and, and re- really needy. And I, I tried making it work. I tried reading Desire of Ages, and I looked at the clock more than I looked at the book. And, and um, I tried a revival that was really not a genuine revival, uh, a feeling, just feeling. And I thought I loved him, and I thought everything, and three weeks later I was flat, <laughs> wondering where it all went. And then one night I actually went through the Bible, I was pretending preaching, and followed him to the cross. And somewhere between Jesus' last miracle and Gethsemane and the cross, I stopped preaching and started living. It was real. I don't know how that happens, but it was absolutely real. I was there. I was struggling. I, I missed his trials. I missed everything in between Gethsemane and the cross, but I finally managed to make it to Golgotha and heard him say, Father, forgive them. And my whole world caved in. That was it. He had me. And, and that, I, that, is, that is just where it all starts for me. 
that is that has never changed. That is has never lost its glow. It's never never faded. It's never gone away. It's permanent in my psyche. Too bad you can't teach that. <laughs> and how do you do it? You know. But I can tell you that God shows up in my classroom. Yeah, he will. So. And and I see it in. And I don't always recognize it when I see it, but then I start reading tests, and they're like writing this stuff, and I'm like, they got it, they got it. <laughs> How did they get it? Just one class session. <laughs> so let's move on, shall we? This the last verse. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. See, that's that's what actually what started my journey. I realized I didn't love God and that I had to love him. That was commandment number 11. I was I was good about keeping the commandments. I mean, I tell you, I worried all Sabbath about breaking them. <laughs> and it was my inability to love him that brought me to the cross. And I realized the reason I didn't love him is because I didn't trust him. You didn't want? I didn't trust him. didn't trust him. Well, if you've read the Old Testament, literally, it's because he's going to just sap you. That, that was part of it, although I wasn't conscious of that. What I didn't trust was what he, I was afraid that I would lose my freedom if I gave myself completely yeah, to God. My, that was my issue, yeah. I would lose my freedom, and he would take me and do things with me that I didn't want to <laughs> do. Didn't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I might act crazy. I might, I might, you know, just do these really weird stuff. We might open a door for you or something. Might <laughs> <laughs> make you a minister or something. <laughs> and I realized at the foot of the cross that a God who would go to such lengths to win me back was a God who would never hurt me. He was safe. And this is, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our trust. And trust works by love and purifies the soul. Yeah, if, you don't, if you don't trust, you're not safe enough to love, to open your heart. Yeah. So, uh, whoever does not love me, does not trust me, does not keep my words. We can, we can outwardly keep all ten of the Ten Commandments. We can force ourselves to do it. That's the way I used to be. I'll make myself do it. But we don't really do it unless we love him. Yeah, it's a question about the wording. Why does it add, but the Father which sent me, why is he, it makes sense to me, he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the words which you hear is not mine. But it's from the Father who sent me. Why is he having emphasized that there? What, what, how does that... Remember, back in verse 6, well, verse 5, let's see, never mind. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Hmm. Okay. Jesus, it, one of his big purposes here is to really establish with the disciples, I am the Father to you. The Father is just like me. See, you can imagine the disciples were more steeped in the Old Testament than we are. They were closer to it than we are. And they wanted to know about that God on Sinai. They wanted to know about that God who zapped people. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But, but you, you don't go around zapping people, so you, how can you be like the Father? And Jesus doesn't answer that question. And I think, I think the reason is they weren't ready for it. Remember, there were many things he wanted to show them, but they could not bear them now. Mm. So let's move to verse 25. Uh, Christian, would you read to the end of the chapter, please? Okay. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things 
and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Why does the world need to know that Jesus loves the Father? Well, I think part of it is because Jesus doesn't want to be set up as a Mesopotamian idol. Now that's interesting. When he leaves, he wants to be known as the Father. He represents the Father. The Father's love. He's love. And it's a mutual. If I were to put a little different nuance on this, I wonder if it would be clearer. So that the world might know that I love the Father. And that emphasis on love indicates oh, he's lovable. He's, he's wonderful. You, you look at me and what I've done. I love the Father. So everything I've done reflects that. Reflects him. Is that embedded much in the Jewish writing? Do they love the Father? Oh, let me tell them, talk about love. <laughs> this is a painful topic. Why does the Old Testament never say that God is love? It's because the ancient Near East co-opted that word to mean something totally different than the New Testament means. Love meant a legal relationship of loyalty. Where you were bound, you had to be loyal. You had to show loyalty. It was used, love was used in treaties to depict the vassal's relationship with the suzerain. So even Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. To a Jew meant loyalty, treaty loyalty. It's covenant loyalty. And they saw a covenant as a treaty. The Hebrew covenant is rooted in a totally different kind of relationship than that. But, but they went to Babylon, and they took on Babylon in every way. And so there you have. So the prince of this earth really went right at the heart of who God is and destroyed the whole concept he, of love. From the get-go, he, he revised human relationships <clears throat> from what we've been talking about in terms of intimacy and bonding and interconnectedness and all of that. He revised it to have legal clasps that chained you. Power and control. Exactly. And that's why in the Old Testament, God is rarely referred to as having love. In fact, when God reveals himself on Sinai, he doesn't mention love. I am Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious God, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Not a word about love. Why? Because that word is bad. Took me a long time to be willing to re realize that. I was always fishing for a different answer. <laughs> and then one day I just said, you know, they're right. <laughs> These scholars that are saying this are right. That's, and I started looking up a lexicon, doing a concordance work, trying to find love associated with God. And I do find it, but you don't even find God referred to much as Father in the Old Testament. Why? Because Father was a hierarchical figure that had a legal relationship with his wife and his children. So when God is referred to as Father, it's always in the context of, as a father pities his child, so the Lord pities those that 
love him. Or that fear him, I guess, is actually the word. But fear doesn't... It, you understand that every Hebrew word is a spectrum of meaning. and You have to go by context to know whether it means to be afraid or whether it means to be awestruck or, or reverent or respectful. Yet God had a terribly difficult time because of the constructs, language, everything he had to work with within the framework of the Old Testament and the ancient Near East. And that's why it was not enough for him to reveal himself to the prophets through Moses uh, and through circumstances. <coughs> he had to show up. <laughs> he used Doug's turn. So what, what happened um, between the Old and the New Testament where Jesus now he starts using the more modern well, God, Actually, more the modern rabbis started to move that direction. And I'm not sure how they did. But it's possible that the father figure lost some of its hierarchy when this this house of the father construct is so prevalent there is second millennium. First millennium, you move to a new level of hierarchy, of empirical, high-level high authority and almost despotism. Uh, and and in that period, everything gets tyrannized. I mean, it's just bureaucratic, power-based, completely to the nth degree. When you have Ezra Had and Sadakrib and, and Ashurbanipal and uh, those great Assyrian kings, and then Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar in, in the Neo-Babylonian period. So what may have happened is that this, this image of a father, a loving father, may have come back in. It actually was uh, a vogue somewhat in the personal gods of uh, the second millennium with the Kassites. Kassites introduced more personalized religion. But it, it, it's toggled back and forth. And, and the rabbi somewhere picked up on this possibility that God was a father. They didn't, they didn't picture him the way Jesus did. Mm-hmm. Not even close. But they were using the idea that God was a father. And so Jesus just took that and completely mm-hmm. revised it. So they would they'd listen, listen to the story of the, you know, the prodigal... Oh, the parable of the prodigal son is just astounding. It is astounding. He was out in a pig pen. He was unclean. And you come home and you 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 throw his, your best robe around him? What are you thinking? He can't go to the synagogue very well. Oh, my. How would they, how would they hear that? They're sitting listening to that story. But it just, they just... He's foolish. The father was foolish. The father, yeah, the father is the prodigal. <laughs> you know, prodigal has more than one meaning. <laughs> the father is the prodigal. In fact, I I have preached that sermon a sermon on that story several times called the prodigal father, mm-hmm. because I'm using that in that different meaning. But but I mean, to him, he was as wastrel as his son. Well, the son came by it honestly. Look at his his dad does. Mm-hmm. And, but Jesus takes in that story. He takes all. The paradigms of salvation and turns them inside out. Where's the sacrifice? The fatted calf? <laughs> the feast? <laughs> um, and, and, and where's the intercession? Text says the father goes out to intercede with the son, the older brother. What? You mean God is interceding with us, not Jesus with the Father? Wait a minute. <laughs> it's a great story. So let's, let's see what we can find in this um, passage. What kind of peace does the world give? Yeah, what, what, what is in the context? In the, what is, when he talks about peace. What is he talking about? What does that mean? Well, of course, peace... Hebrew peace, shalom. It means wholeness. It means, yeah, it means that everything is working together. Please, please remember that Hebrew thinking is holistic at its best. 
all the, all the whereas ways where the Jews went astray was copying the other nations around them. Yeah. It, it, their actual theology, their actual language was just beautiful for conveying some of the things that we're talking about. So, peace is wholeness, completeness, health. On all levels. All levels. Everything. Prosperity. Absolutely. Everything. Absolutely everything. So the world finds peace by trying to force it, doesn't it? And it only creates more chaos. Back at 2, starting with verse 12. I wish our country could get this. Alas for you who build a town by bloodshed. Habakkuk 2, verse 12. Alas for you who build a town by bloodshed and found a city on iniquity. So you have this picture. Uh, in fact, going up to verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, about this all the survivals of your, the people shall plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to cities and all who live in them. This is talking about how nation rises up against nation and fights nation against nation, and, and whoever's strongest wins, and then someone else rises up against them and fights them, and this goes on and on, cycle after cycle. Isn't that what you study in world history? Nothing but that. So now verse 12. Alas for you who build a town by bloodshed and found a city on iniquity. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor only to feed the flames and the nations weary themselves for nothing. But the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What I see, and I think that day is coming soon, my understanding is that we have a time of great distress and then there will be a pause and in that pause the latter rain will fall God is going to let and, and I think this is what is happening in, in World War II God was trying to get across to those who thought the only way solution to this problem is to kill Hitler. God was shaking his head and said, no, I'm going to preserve his life to the bitter end, and only Hitler can kill Hitler. What he wanted was to demonstrate that violence only leads to violence. We don't gain anything by it. And when we finally get that enough long enough to listen he's going to pour out his knowledge as the waters cover the sea and let us see the truth I guess that sort of answered my question but I've always wondered why do we have to wait till the latter you know end times to have the really outpouring of the Holy Spirit We're not I, ready I don't for understand it. that but you think the world after persecuting each other, suddenly we'll be ready to understand. I don't quite make the connection. Of it. I don't think, I don't think that a lot of people will. But I think, I think there's growing numbers. I mean, when I'm I'm watching world events right now, and I don't I don't read the news headlines, but I can't help but bump into it all over Facebook. Mm -hmm. But as as I watch it, I observe a really stronger and stronger and bigger and bigger group of people who are saying this is not the way to go, this is not the w what's working, this is not what we need. We don't need violence, we don't need force, we need love. I'm, I'm hearing this begin to crescendo. And maybe, maybe it isn't that there's this pause where everybody just stands off, wow, we can't do anymore. Maybe it's really that out of this turbulence, force against force, violence against violence, there emerges an, a group of people who say, no, 
This is not how we do it. What we need is love to make shalom. It's, it's a kind of Revelation 18, kind of that pause where the merchant, everyone mourns because the system has collapsed using power and force. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good way of putting it. And then you actually, brokenness leads to healing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. And, and I think that, I, think, I don't think the latter rain is going to be loud and forceful and amazing. I think it's going to be really grassroots, moving, kind of like a grass fire. You know the difference between a grass fire and a bonfire. Grass fires are hotter, and they go deeper. But they don't cause destruction. They bring healing. I, I, I'm talking about control burning and, and how that happens in fields sometimes. Mm-hmm. Farmers used to do that a lot. They'd burn the field of all the hay and stubble. So Jesus' peace, Jesus' shalom is... He's going to leave that with his disciples. How is he going to leave that? Isn't it the disciple? Isn't it the, the Holy Spirit that he leaves behind? Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit generates that peace? So the Holy Spirit's always been there. He has. It's when we allow him to be who he is, to work in our lives, to take control, not by force, but by love. So do you think the disciples were so focused on Christ that they weren't focused on working to the Holy Spirit? So he had to really... I don't think we're to be focused on the Holy Spirit. I think we're always to be focused on Christ, but to surrender to the Holy Spirit, to surrender to Christ, is to allow him then to live his life in us. He's really telling you, he's going to educate you, give you knowledge. Uh, The Holy Spirit doesn't bypass the mind. He doesn't control us. Like, I was, t- I was told this by the editor of Guide magazine many, many years ago. He used the illustration of putting a rabbit skin glove. This is before you know such <laughs> things were banned, but a rabbit skin glove on his hand and playing the piano, and how he was manipulating the glove, and that's how the Holy Spirit uses us, etc. That's not how. He always works through the brain. He always works through the mind. Well, we can maybe come back to that passage next time. (laughs) We haven't milked it for all it's worth. (laughs) Dear God, who has at such cost revealed yourself to us, because what you want from us more than anything else is a close, intimate relationship of love and trust. That's what you look forward to about your coming. It isn't merely rescuing us from this planet, but it is the ultimate rescue of ourselves when we can see you face to face and know that you've been with us all the time. May we walk with you through storms, through fire, through whatever lies ahead. And may we be so close to you that we can simply walk like Enoch on home. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.